tea with Toby. Tea with Toby. Tea with Toby. Welcome to season five of our Tea with Toby podcast. This season, our focus is all about elevating social care, and we touch on a number of key and topical subjects vital to growing care organisations. In this episode, we're in for a treat as I'm joined by two giants in the care sector. Professor Martin Green, OBE, Chief Executive of Care England, and Professor Vic Rayner, OBE, CEO of the National Care Forum. And we'll be discussing what makes an ideal care business, how the future looks with recent innovations, as well as discussing and dispelling common myths about the care sector. So buckle up and let's dive straight in. Professor Martin Green, great to have you on the show. So if you can start with a helicopter view introduction to who you are and what you do. I'm Martin Green. I'm the Chief Executive of Care England, and we're a representative body for care providers. And our members deliver services for older people, particularly those living with dementia. We have a significant number of services which are um, for people with learning disabilities and autism. We have some brain injury services and some mental health services. So from that, we get a really good overview of what's going on in the care sector. And we try to improve the environment for care providers. So we do a lot of work with government, but we also try and do some very tangible things that will help care providers deliver high quality care. Well, it's fantastic to have you back on the show. I think last time you was on the show, it was a very different time. It was in the middle of uh, COVID. Um, But today, what we want to be focusing on is the ideal care business. You are knee deep in the sector and... If we were to say that there was a care, there were businesses that wanted to come into the space, what would you say are the four or five different elements that they should be considering to create that ideal care business? Well, the first thing I think people need to do is a lot of research. So you need to know what's happening in your local area. So you need to think about what the population process is. So you think about the demographics. Are there lots of people? who need care and support in that area. Then I think you need to do a horizon scan of what services are currently available because what you need to do is differentiate your service from others. So then I would start thinking about how is my service going to be different? How am I going to, for example, embrace technology so that we can get efficiencies as well as better outcomes for people who use services? And a general point, um, I think anybody who's thinking about starting a business should think about technology, but they should first of all think, how is this going to improve the outcomes for the people who will use the service? Then you need to think, how is this going to produce efficiencies within the business and make it much more um, efficient to run that particular business? I would also say you need to be mindful of where you're going to get the staff from. So you're going to have to think that it's a very competitive area. We have significant numbers of vacancies in social care. So anybody who's starting a new business must think, how am I going to attract and retain the right staff? So first of all, I think that's about the value proposition. So core values of the business, how is that going to connect with potential staff? Then I would say, how are you going to make sure that it's a good quality working offering that you're offering people. So think about not only pay and conditions, think about flexibility, think about training, 
Think about how you are going to differentiate your service and make it a destination for people who want to work in care. And then finally, I would think about if it's successful, how am I going to scale it up? And how am I going to scale it up in a manageable way? One of the challenges for any business is to get the pace of an upscaling a business right. And if you do it too quickly, it's not sustainable. So I think those are probably the elements I would think of if I was considering starting a care business now. There's some great elements and let's dive into some of them and a bit more detail, starting with technology and recruitment. From your perspective, have you seen maybe some of the members who are doing some really interesting things, particularly around technology and recruitment? Yeah, well, let's take the technology piece first. I mean, I've seen some really fantastic work being done by some of my members. I'm particularly thinking of the work that Majestic Care is doing. Angela Boxall is a fantastic leader in the care sector. Yes. And she has been spearheading some wonderful initiatives, including things like Alexa for care homes. Now, what was really great for me was that when they talked to me about Alexa for care homes, I said to Angela, I want to go and talk to residents and staff because I want to understand the difference it's making. And I went to Cavendish Park in Evesham and I had a fantastic day there talking to residents, talking to staff about the impact Alexa was having. Now, one of the things that was great was I talked to residents who said it had really made a difference to them. So I talked to one lady who had very severe arthritis and she said to me, You've no idea how many times I dropped the remote control and then suddenly the channel changed. I used to have to press a call button. Somebody would then come. By the time they'd arrived and put the channel back, you know, 10 minutes of the program had gone. She said, I now just sit and say, Alexa, BBC2, and on it comes. Similarly, she said, if I want a drink, I can tell Alexa I want a drink. It goes straight to the catering team, who then bring a drink. So um, that was also very evident to how it was driving efficiencies in the business. So rather than staff having to come and ask people what they wanted, people were able to directly put their needs into the system. The other thing that was great was I talked to two residents who told me that they could speak to each other in a really easy way. And so one lady said to her friend, it lives in the other part of the building, but she would say to her in the morning, what time are you going down for breakfast? Let's meet and have breakfast together. Similarly, people were being in contact with their families. So this was giving people a much better life experience. From Angela's point of view, as the CEO of that organisation, though, she was also seeing not only the benefits to the people she supported, but she was seeing it driving efficiencies in her business. It was enabling staff to do the really important work of caring rather than the logistical work of organising and behind-the-scenes stuff. So I think that was a really good example of technology making a difference. Just to touch on that, that's um, super powerful because those examples are intangibles you probably won't hear about, but actually to the individual, they've got complete control of their life now. Do you know, absolutely, Toby. And one of the things that I felt was great was this was giving people autonomy, choices and control. And the other thing that's really interesting about that particular system is it's not hugely expensive. 
And so some of the technology that I've seen that's made the biggest impact has been relatively cheap. So another example, I went to a care home in Lincolnshire and there was a man there who was living with advanced dementia. He'd been into hospital five times in, in four months because of urinary tract infections. They fitted him with a relatively cheap Fitbit. And when this Fitbit identified slight changes in his body temperature and slight changes in his activity, these were preludes to a UTI. They then put in proactive medicine and that man never went back to hospital for the last 11 months of his life. Now that was good for him, but it was good for the system. So technology there was making a difference to the person and to the system. And when we get technology right, it has those dual benefits. I love that example because I'm actually wearing a Fitbit, but I'm also wearing a Whoop as well. And I don't know whether you've heard an Aura Ring. It's what high-performance athletes use to assess themselves. I also think there's going to be a world where these devices are used to prevent illness. One of the things, like, for example, I, um, I looked at on the Whoop was it would tell me if I've got if I've just worked out and I didn't get enough sleep, the next day, how my day should be. Should I be doing strenuous activity? But just imagine a world where carers get to interpret that type of data to impact the lives of the people that they're caring for. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. And we are in the foothills of what is going to be the next revolution. And this is going to be the revolution of prevention and, and enablement rather than it being about process. We are going to see a technology revolution that will shift the dial from organizations and processes and set it firmly about people and outcomes. And that is going to be so powerful for the care sector. So I really think we must, as a care sector, though, embrace this. The first technological revolution, we were on the back foot as a sector. We were not in the vanguard of embracing technology. We've got to start doing this now. We've got to be on the front foot. And uh, the other thing that often people say to me is, um, oh, well, the technology might change, so I won't make a decision. Well, actually, you need to make decisions early. Yes, the technology will change. That's inevitable. But you can't use change as an excuse for not doing anything because what you need to know, and it goes back to what I said earlier about how you craft what a business does, what people need to know is if you are delaying making those decisions and making those investments, the rest of the world won't do that and you will be left behind as a business. So this is about, it's about survival, but it's more than that. It's about embracing technology as a route map to thriving in a difficult environment. I'm going to touch on something like that uh, towards, towards the end. I would love to pick your brains on, um, on that. So that's a great example in terms of one of your members, Majesticare. Massive shout out to Angela and what they're doing uh, from a technology perspective. Have you got any examples from a workforce perspective? Yeah, in, in fact, many caring the members are doing some really interesting things around the workforce. So, for example, Boopa is looking at ways in which they can attract different um, cohorts of people to work in care. They're looking at flexible approaches to work. They're focusing on the quality of work. Um, uh, and Rebecca Pearson has been leading some fantastic work at, at Boopa around that. Similarly, um, at HC1, they've looked at terms and conditions and they've started to see changes in things like attrition rates and turnover rates because they have invested heavily in their staff 
not only in terms of terms and conditions, but also in terms of training, mm. of well-being, of enabling people to feel part of an organization. Similarly, the National Care Group, a, 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 a very high-level provider of people and services for people with learning disabilities and autism, doing some fantastic work there led by James Allen, um, uh, which is about trying to improve the quality of work and the feeling of belonging to an organization which the staff get, and that's paying its dividends. So right across the sector, you know, I've given three examples there, but I could have given 30 examples yeah. of people who recognize their staff are their biggest asset. They need to work in different ways now. They need to invest in their staff, and that's not only about terms and conditions. It's about the quality of work experience. And people post-COVID want more flexibility, and I think we have to embrace that. But technology, again, with things like technology rotoring systems, this is starting to be much easier to be flexible. And, uh, for example, older workers who've been attracted back to um, organizations like Bupo, what you find is they live and work in the same area. So what you then find is if a member of staff doesn't come in, you can ring up another member of the team and say, can you do an extra shift? And often they can say, I'll be there in 10 minutes. Yeah. And also people often don't want to have either a 17 and a half hour or a 35 hour uh, contract. They want much more flexibility and particularly people who might be early retired, but they are able to not only do some work on a planned rotor, but they're often available to fill gaps which is a much better and much more cost-effective way of filling gaps than agency staff, for example. Absolutely. And it's so great to hear so many examples of care providers really doing great things when it comes to technology. 2024 was probably the year when AI became mainstream. So let's talk about AI. From your perspective, what, what do you think the opportunity is in the care sector? What are the possible use cases of AI? Well, I think AI is going to be great for things like report writing, creating audit trails for the regulator. I think also AI is going to be able to identify patterns that might um, then give you some pointers to things like how people are going to respond to changes in medication, falls, processes. And I think there are some specific things um, like Socio, which is doing some work on falls, which is incorporating AI and enabling people to then predict and stop people falling. Um, the, uh, the the people at Dormy, you know, Helen um, uh, Parsons is doing some great work there as well on using that system. And this is a good example of a system that's got lots of bits of technology, including AI, coming together to be very preventative in the approach to falls. So I think there's a real opportunity for us to use AI, and again, we need to be on the front foot here, not at the back. Absolutely. And there are going to be a whole load of people who are going to be coming into the sector. And let's say they're watching this. A load of people and the general public have a lot of preconceptions of the care sector. Mm. Can we talk a little bit about some of those myths? And let's try and bust them. What would you say for someone coming in is the current preconception of the sector? What are some of the myths? Um, and let's touch on those and talk through those. 
Well, I think, for example, there is a myth that it is not keeping up and up pace with technology, for example. Now, I've given loads of examples where it is taking technology and that's really changing the experience of people who use services. There is a myth as well that when you particularly go into a care home, that your life finishes. Well, actually, I, I spoke to a woman. It's really interesting. She had been living in her own home, frightened at night. Her husband had died seven years ago. And she said a really powerful thing to me. She said, when I came to this care home, I thought it was the end of my life. Yeah. Little did I realize it was the start of a new chapter. And she said, I'm doing things now that I haven't done since my husband died all those years ago. You know, for example, she said, I used to be at home on my own, never saw anybody. When I came into this care home, one of the things I realized was I was shabby. And she said the care home then arranged for the hairdresser. We went out, we bought new clothes, which I hadn't done for years. She said, I go to events, I, I'm involved in entertainment. She said, all I did in the past was sit in my house watching the television and waiting for the two half hour uh, home care visits, which was all that she got. And now she said her life was enriched. And I think there is a stories that we have got to get out there until they bust a lot of myths. The other thing that is a myth is the myth that this is an easy job to do, that people in care work somehow couldn't do anything else. Well, let me tell you, this is a very skilled, very complex profession. And, you know, not only do you have to understand people, but you've got to understand things like, you know, the massive amounts of support people need, people with comorbidities, people with significant drug regimes that you have to support them and enable them to to live well and and the myth that somehow this is an unskilled occupation this is a very highly skilled very complex thing to do and the people who do it well are absolutely outstanding and we've got to get that message out as well but we've got to also recognize in pay in terms conditions and in training the complexity of the work and the skills of the people who do this work. That's a powerful one. I think the recruitment element, just to touch on that. One of the things we've seen in terms of running recruitment campaigns or working with care providers is the the resilience piece. The care, you know, from the general public's perception, maybe if they've seen the TikTok videos during COVID and people dancing, they might just think, oh, you know, these people are just doing X, Y, and Z. But actually, it takes a lot of resilience, you know. There could be something not so great that happened the previous night. That person has to go to bed, wake up, be smiling, ready to serve again. And also with technology changing, the role is changing. That interpretation piece, I love the uh, a prevention revolution. That's going to be so, so vital. Exactly. And, you know, Toby, one of the things that you're so right about is that people have to be really resilient because they deal with amazingly complex issues and also I think you know one of the things people need to understand particularly around services for older people is that people are constantly dealing with what we I describe as professional bereavement now interestingly if you're working in a hospital you might have contact with somebody who dies for two or three days if you're working in a care home it might be two years and you've built up a relationship with that person and when that person dies you go through a bereavement process and people don't acknowledge that and there is a myth abroad that somehow you just should get on with it and you're never affected by these things. Well, of course you're affected by these things. 
Um, you know, I, 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 I remember being at a funeral um, and family members saying to me, I think the staff is, uh, you know, more upset than we are. Mm. And I said, yes, well, these staff have been seeing your father every single day and they've built a relationship with him. You have been able to see your father a lot, but it's a different interaction. Yeah. But interestingly, she said to me, it is a different interaction because every time I saw my father, it was a quality interaction. If I'd been looking after him, it wouldn't have been. And she said, I am eternally grateful to the people who looked after my dad so that I could be with my dad as my dad, not as a carer. And I thought that was a very powerful comment. And it really underlines the importance of the work people in care do. Absolutely. Super valid point. Let's talk about a myth that a naysayer would say. <clears throat> robotics, we don't want robotics in care. It's so impersonal. What would you say to that? Well, interestingly, I was very interested in um, looking at a, a video of a robot that was being used to toilet people in Japan. And I thought, oh, this is very impersonal. And then the person who had been toileted said, I feel so much better that it is something that doesn't have a sort of human aspect because I don't want the indignity of somebody mm. engaging with me at that most personal moment. And the robot does everything that's needed to be done to enable me to have the privacy to be toileted. And I thought that was a very powerful comment. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is that we should let service users be the definers of whether or not they think it's appropriate. And in lots of cases, robotics can be really, really helpful to people, particularly because they can respond to people in real time. And you know, the example, for example, that I gave of the lady who had home carers for yeah. two half hours, if she'd had a robot in her house, and she wanted to pick up the newspaper, that robot might have been able to do that when she wanted it, not her having to wait two hours for somebody to come in and say, can you give me the newspaper? So I think, first of all, we need to look at the potential of robotics. Secondly, we need to let people who use services be the definer of what they want and when they want it. And we also need to understand that element of if a person is doing some things that does sometimes compromise somebody's dignity, where a robot might be able to do it and maintain people's privacy and dignity. So I think those elements need to be factored into this debate about robotics. 100%. And I also agree. It's a perspective thing because, as you were just saying, that example, we, um, me and my wife, we spent our anniversary at uh, the Shard. And in the Shard Hotel, they've got this very advanced robotic toilet as well. And people are paying top dollar for that. So actually, in these hotels, what could be seen as first-class service, actually having this type of technology in care homes is absolutely first-class service. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's about redefining what we mean by independence mm. um, because one of the things that I think is so difficult for people as they get frailer or they have life limiting conditions or indeed they have things that stop them doing things like a stroke for example it's that loss of control now if robotics and technology can give them back control that really helps them to manage their lives and also to feel that sense of them being the driver rather than other people doing things to them them being the people who initiate what happens when. Fantastic. Look, I could speak to you all day. 
that listen to this, I'm looking at my uh, producer waving me down, but we've got a special question we're asking, a bonus question to all our guests for this season. And that question is, forgetting about the how, in an ideal world, if there was one thing you would implement that will make a positive impact to the care sector, what would it be? I think parity of esteem with care workers and health workers. Actually, we do the same job. The world thinks that health workers are absolutely wonderful and they don't understand what care workers do and they don't realise that care workers are equally wonderful. And if we got that parity of esteem, a lot of the other issues, like the workforce challenges, I think would go away. And it needs to be a parity of esteem, which also incorporates a parity of remuneration and a parity of some of the other things that people get in health that we don't get in social care, like pensions, for example. Absolutely. Totally agree. Professor Martin Green, thank you so much for joining the show. Thanks, Toby. So great to be back. Uh, so my name is Vic Rayner, and I'm the chief executive of an organisation called the National Care Forum, which works with not-for-profit care providers. Fantastic. Now, Vic, it's awesome to have you back on the show. <laughs> in Tea with Toby fashion, we're going to dive straight in and... We're going to take this from a different perspective, and this is the ideal care business. Now, if we were to focus on the new wave of uh, operators coming into the sector, the next generation, and if they were to watch this episode before they start crafting and building their care business, how would you describe the ideal care business? Before we dive into the answer to that question, did you know 73% of people expect organisations like yours, to understand their unique needs and expectations. And a whopping 98% of professionals say that they benefited from automation as it allows them to save time and focus on more customers. 98%? That's almost everyone. Want to find out more about what your customers expect from your service? Download Salesforce's State of Service report to discover the trends in the market and keep your business in the know. The direct link can be found in the show notes below. Now back to the episode. Well, it's pretty obvious for me, really. So I would say those new wave of care providers should be not-for-profit organisations. Well, in that case, let's dive into yeah. that a little bit more. Okay. So from your perspective, what would you say the benefits are for not-for-profit care? Okay, so the, there's lots of, I mean, let's, we'll, let's unpack this a little mm. bit and try and, and be clear. So first of all, there are lots of different models of not-for-profit organisations. So uh, amongst our membership, we have a full range of those. So they will include the traditional charity that people think of who, um, who might offer a range of different services in a local community. And they might be a very small organisation who, uh, you know, perhaps offers one care home or a single home care service or a day service or something like that. And they might be a very large, long-established uh, charity um, such as somebody like Anchor as a housing association, but those kind of big organisations, uh, Order of St John's Charitable Trust, those people have been around for a very long time. So charities is one model of that. Uh, we also have housing associations, as I mentioned, people like Anchor, Sanctuary, um, Look Ahead, large organisations who are uh, comply with the regulations in relation to the housing sector. Uh, and we also have newer models uh, that have developed in the last 15, 20 years. So com community interest companies, uh, those that are non-shareholding kicks is the term for those who, that are non-profit. Um, 
non-profit uh, organizations. And also we have LACCOs, which are local authority trading companies. Uh, and also uh, other not-for-profit organizations are, lo are local authorities themselves, and uh, NHS providers sit in that mm. sort of bracket. So it's a really varied field uh, of organizations that are out there in that not-for-profit space. And as a not-for-profit business, what are the benefits from, you know, from the community's perspective? Yes. Yeah, I mean, they're huge, I think. So um, I think you, you've got a, a range of things that go on within not-for-profit organisations. The first of all is just to be really clear what the not-for-profit means. Yes. So a lot of people get confused and think they don't, you know, either not-for-profits don't charge for their services or they don't. Uh, there's no costs involved. Well, of course, that's not the case. These are large organisations delivering against publicly funded care contracts or, or other things. But the, the key difference is that any surplus that's made within those organisations is reinvested back into the organisation and back into that community. So it's going into either the workforce, it's going into better uh, care delivery, it's going into um, buildings uh, that are, if it's a, if it's a residential setting. So that's that any of that surplus is is being reinvested back into that community. And I think that's the really important element of all of this, because we're sitting in a country, you know, that's had um, austerity for the last 13 years, yeah. for example. So any publicly funded money that has gone into care services, um, I think, should be going into those that are not that are not for profit and are going to make sure that any surplus made within that is for the training of the staff, the better quality of care for people uh, and a reinvestment in that community. Mm, and I can probably imagine that there's benefits from having that sort of governance board as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, lots of these boards will be governed in different ways, mm. but, but they will all have a sort of central focus around the kind of values and principles. If they're charitable, they'll have a a charitable constitution that they have to, and articles they have to uh, sort of fit in with, which talk about what their charitable purpose is in, in those areas. So definitely governance. And what that often means, particularly for local not-for-profit organisations, is that that board of governance is drawn very closely and very locally from that community. So the community has a real voice in terms of how that organisation is run. Brilliant. And one of the things we're seeing for for-profit organisations a lot is this big buzzword of ESG? Yes. Whereas some of the elements are well, yes, we've got a we've, we've got a big head start in relation <laughs> to that, uh, particularly in terms of the kind of governance side of things, mm. as I've explained, um, but also in terms of that sort of social element of it as well. So organisations that are making a are already fully understanding their roles as a kind of a, within that society, within that social setting. And what about the public's perception, do you think they have a different view of not-for-profit care? Yeah, I think they do. I mean, we did some research about in about 2020, I think it was, asking the public what they wanted in terms of who they wanted to deliver their care for them. And uh, within that, 75% of those responding wanted either not-for-profit or, or public services to, to provide their care. And I think there's a really interesting thing to have a look at, Toby, in the context of um, what's happening in Wales at the moment. Mm. So in Wales, um, there has been a, a sort of statement by the Welsh Government and an open consultation that's been going on to try and eliminate uh, any commissioning of for-profit services for children's services. Oh, right. 
So they've set out some quite ambitious timeframes in terms of when they want to achieve that. But by 2024, they don't want to commission any new for-profit children's services in that um, in that context. And then by 2026, they want all providers to have converted into a not-for-profit provision. Now, we don't have that here, but we do have some vehicles that commissioners could think about how they utilise more effectively, particularly the Social Value Act, which is encouraging them to look at those broader societal contributions mm. that publicly funded services make. Um, one of the things that is also a great benefit to communities is often... Uh, not-for-profit organisations can bring in lots of volunteering, ah. for example. So connections with the community, uh, where they are perhaps making uh, strong connections with local church and community groups, perhaps with children's groups, scouts, cubs, brownies, primary schools, those kind of things. There might be some uh, long-term connections with those organisations. There might well be... Um, people who uh, want to come and volunteer. And so one of our members, for example, uh, MHA, mm. uh, they have a, a very extensive volunteering programme that enables them to support lots of people at home as well as um, adding extra capacity and support into the care uh, settings as well, mm. uh, not replacing paid staff's roles but adding value uh, to support people who perhaps don't have other family members who come in and see them as regularly as they might like to. So adding that kind of connection and community in. So. And that's really handy, especially we know with the uh, um, recruitment crisis uh, we have. But is there any, um, we know every single business is different, um, but is there any sort of data that might suggest not-for-profit care provisions uh, perform better or any other areas of the business that they perform so I think profit. particularly around recruitment and retention, uh, there's been data, pre prior data, I, can't, I haven't looked at the most recent data coming out of Skills for Care, but that has suggested that levels of retention, particularly amongst not-for-profit providers, are, are stronger. And I think depending on which sort of types of services, there's some, there's some focus around quality provision as well. I th and I think if you, you know, in a way there's a logic to it, isn't it? So if what you do is you take the surplus and you reinvest that, um, back into either the workforce or the training or the or the building or uh, activities for people who are um, living within those services or receiving those services. Um, that's where you can see that reinvestment coming through. So touching on reinvestment, where does innovation come in? I know you're big on yeah. innovation. What are some of the trends you're seeing or the trends you'd like to see when it comes for not yeah. So well, I mean, I think there's lots of things around innovation that the not-for-profit sector has been traditionally very good at. Um, so if you look at quite a lot of the new models of care delivery that are coming through the village-type models of care, uh, it's been a lot of our members who've been the archety architects of those models. They've looked at international models. They've brought some of that learning and expertise back to the UK. Um, so organisations like Belong. Uh, who have had a really strong, strongly recognised international leadership role around village-type models of delivery. Uh, Organisations like WCS Care, who've taken a massive leadership role across the whole sector in terms of how technology uh, is inputted. You've got other organisations like Greensleeves, who've taken some um, real interest in, in alternative models of delivery like Eden and uh, Namaste. So, I mean, that's where that innovation sort of starts with and then I think what you get within the not-for-profit 
organisations, and, and certainly we see this very lively um, in a very lively way within NCF, is, is their willingness to share. Mm. So there's a massive kind of pool of resource that comes from those organisations that want to work together, that are, are happy to share and, uh, and, and develop ideas together and lots of partnership that comes through that way. And from a technology perspective, have you got any examples you can maybe share that some of the providers are interested yes. in? Yes, so some of the things that, um, you know, where we know members are interested in the same things. So, yeah. for example, um, WCS Care have taken a real leadership around circadian rhythm, rhythm lighting. And then other members, um, so like, for example, Parkhaven up in the northwest had wanted to develop a new home embedding a lot of this technology so there was a great partnership that developed to share resources and share learning between them so awesome. yeah and i think you know there's there's lots of great examples where um members so we spend a lot of time bringing members together and generally what they will do is if for example there's a new piece of technology that somebody's interested in if someone's already using it they'll come and share their you know they'll come and give you an open and frank uh, assessment of whether where they're using it, how they're using it, have they had to change policies and procedures in order for that to happen. So. Awesome. Now, there's something new mm. that we're doing on the show, mm -hmm. and we're asking all guests a particular question, mm -hmm. and that's forgetting the how in an ideal world, what's something you would implement in the care sector that will make a positive difference? So forgetting the how. Forgetting the how. Um, so I'm yet a bit, a bit stuck on the how in a sense, but I think what I think what I would want to see implemented is a kind of real shift in commissioner behaviour. Mm. So that and that commissioner behaviour in a sense supporting organisations to um, either you know to to recognise that not for profit provision uh, is a really strong. Um, proposal and proposal for their locality. So mm. I think seeing them move themselves into a position where they are specifically advocating and making clear that they want to promote the development of the not-for-profit sector in their community. So mm. seeing them very much uh, for people uh, rather than for profit. Awesome. And I've got to bring it up. On the last sh uh, episode that we've done, there was a particular part, a segment that went viral mm -hmm. on our show where you talked about how do we get the care sector and um, all the roles available out yeah. to the you know to yeah. the public, and you suggested it needs a, we need our own soap opera. Soap opera, yes, that went viral. Right, a load okay. of people yeah. started coming on it yeah. and said absolutely. And then we were talking at the innovation in care yeah. conference, and I, I took it further. I said, well, maybe it deserves its own. Um, come down with me, yeah, at different care shows, yeah. Uh, but one of the big thing is, I think. If I was asked that question, I think, how could we bring more people into the sector through the common means that everyone else learns about everything else? And that's through entertainment and media as well. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I still think that's a, that would be a great win mm. for us. I, I mean, I do think that the other, there is another bit about how do we get people excited about the roles that they're doing. And I think... Mm. And I spent a long time working in the supportive housing sector before working in care. And I think there we were a lot better, perhaps, or clearer, or it was more straightforward for people to see that the work that they did was really work that was about social justice. Mm. And it was, and that felt like 
for particularly for a lot of younger people, a very different role to come into, one that was actually about enabling people to change the lives that they're leading. And so I think that, you know, this is uh, another kind of uh, something that I say quite often, but I'll say it to you totally yeah. anyway, just as well. But that idea that actually if you talk about the health service, you talk about people saving lives. And actually, if you talk about social care, you talk about changing lives. Mm. And I think that's a really appealing thing for people who want to come into work to think about. It's the sort of mantra that lots of other public sector services use if you want to go into the police or teaching or whatever. It's dynamic. Mm. It's about changing things. And that is what care is about. You know, really, really great care workers yes. change people's lives. They enable... They work with them, they support them, they enable people to take back control, and that is, you know, probably the biggest gift that you might be able to give. So I, I think that that's really inspiring. The other thing I would say is I've been reading quite a bit of the stuff that comes out of Wales mm. around why this shift uh, uh, towards not-for-profit provision is important. And I think one of the sort of telling kind of phrases was um, from young people themselves talking about care uh, and talking about how why they thought it was important that it was not for profit mm. and and this sort of I mean left a bit haunted by this idea that sort of young people feeling really strongly that they didn't want people to be making money mm. out of their the challenges that they face and I think that is, is a driver for me in a sense that actually if what we can help commissioners, planners, policy makers, etc. to do to understand that actually it's, it's, it's more than a model, it's actually about providing care that encourage, you know, empowers the people who are receiving it and also um, you know, encourages, enthuses, uh, and sort of makes people very proud um, to be part of that not-for-profit care workforce as well. Very well said. And I, I know I'm just looking over at the producer now, but I have to ask you this one question. Um, it's about AI. Mm -hmm. What's your thoughts on AI in care? Well, um, I think that... Uh, well, like a lot of this stuff, I think unless we quite quickly come to some conclusions about what the people who work and receive care think AI is going to be important to do, then we'll find that we lose control of it quite quickly. Either that it gets kind of gets shut down and seen as a really bad thing, yeah. or that somebody thinks, you know, somebody finds a reason, a way of using it, and, um, and we lose control. So I was running a, a, a session on it the other day, and... Uh, asking people about how they were using AI in, in the care sector. And largely, to, you know, no, no disrespect to my fabulous colleagues, they were sort of making it up a, a bit, in a way, they were trying a bit of chat GPT, okay. and they were trying a bit of this, and they were sort of, you know, using it to bring policies and procedures to life. And these are all fabulous ways of doing it, but they're not probably going to transform the work world we live in. I, I, so I think we need to think about, you know, do we want, are we happy with the idea that AI uh, develops care plans? And if we are happy with that, are people who receive care and support happy that what they then see is reflective of their perspective? Do we know what, how the regulator is going to deal with 
with AI in that sense. Uh, and, are, and are we, you know, are we in clear enough about how AI will help us with the real problems that we've got coming down the line about lack of workforce, about uh, changing demography, about um, understanding, uh, you know, how we showcase and, and uh, elevate the best of care uh, and, and enable it to play its proper role in, in wider policy making rather than to be seen as this sort of adjunct to the health service. That's it. Only time will tell. So well, only to, well, or I don't think we should leave it to time. I think, yeah, we, I exactly. think we should tell That's it. exactly what, what needs to happen. And I know that there's lots of people busy thinking about this and working, you know, working that up. And I'm just, you know, encourage us all to sort of make sure we um, share the learning. There's a great, uh, I was, there's, there's something called the Topol Leadership Scheme. I don't all know right. if you've come across yeah. that. So uh, there's a guy called Topol, sorry. There's probably much more technical stuff I should be putting behind this. But he, he, was, he did some analysis of the leadership, the digital leadership skills mm. across the health sector or the health and care sector, but mostly it was about the health sector. So um, coming out of that, there's a series of fellowships um, that have been developed, and four of them are focused on social care mm. uh, and digital leadership. And I know there's some exciting work going on in there looking at the utilisation of AI and social care. So I'm hopeful we'll have some answers. Absolutely. And I think um, if we can implement AI to do more of the... To, uh, to free up our carers to spend more time to do the more valuable relationship piece work and, and the connection piece, it will also bring in a new generation of carers to yeah, say that actually, yeah. hey, as part of this role, we get to use state-of-the-art technology. Yes. And we get they to probably won't think it's state-of-the-art. I mean, I think, it's I normal think, to them. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've got to recognise that when we bring anybody in now and ask them to write stuff down, they're probably just thinking... What, what's happening. So, yeah, I think it will be... I mean, the beauty of AI is you mm. don't know it's really happening. Yes, yeah, I, I think. And, and things like the work you, know, you do that sort of enables people to um, better communicate mm. what care is all about uh, is a fundamental part of that journey, in a sense. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think it's, it's going to, we're going to find that it has an impact. Um, but we need to be smarter on our feet to work out what that should be. Well, we must get you back on the show. Well, thank you so much for your time, Vic. Awesome having you again on Tea with Toby. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Tea with Toby. If you found this episode useful, don't forget to share it with one of your colleagues from the sector. And if you have any questions, drop me an email at team at If you're new to Tea with Toby, do check out previous episodes in the season. And also, look out for future ones. Tea with Toby is produced by specialist care sector, digital marketing agency, Prosperwell. Caring for the brands that care for others. Tea with Toby. 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 Tea with Toby.